Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Richard, if we haven't met, and I've been a member of MCC for about a year now, married to Lisa, and we have four children. But I grew up here uh, as a local in this area. I went to Kent Road Public School between uh, first grade and fifth grade. But it was in that first day of year three in 1984 that, I, that still sticks out in my memory. Mrs. Thompson, um, she was calling out all the students' names. And she called out my name and she told me to go sit next to Tracy. And so obediently I went and I sat next to Tracy. And then it happened. She started to cry and she started to sob. And all the other girls went around her and started consoling her because she had the great misfortune of having to sit next to the Asian boy. And I just wished that the, the, the floor would open up and swallow me up because I did not want to be there. And my eyes were pleading with Mrs. Thompson, please have mercy on me. Move me. But she was tough and she said, no, you have to sit next to you have to sit next to, well, at the time my name was Yongjun, but you have to sit next to Richard. Now, almost 40 years later, I still remember that rejection. It was only by a classmate. It wasn't by someone who I thought highly of. But how much harder is it when, that, when rejection comes from someone that we love? Maybe our spouse or our children, our parents. Maybe it's someone in authority, your boss or someone you look up to. It's so much harder. And today, in Mark chapter 14, we're going to see reject Jesus rejected by three groups of people. Jesus rejected by his enemies, Jesus rejected by his friends, and Jesus rejected by God. And as we see Jesus being rejected, we're going to see what it shows us about people, what it shows us about God, and what it reveals about ourselves. And if we see... And if we truly understand Jesus' rejection and why he was rejected, then it will transform our lives and help us overcome any rejection that we have faced or will face in the future. But I'm going to ask God to help us as we listen to his word now. So let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we need to see you more clearly. We need to see more of you today. Please reveal our blindness and help us to see. Help us to understand because our lives need to be transformed into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get into the passage, we just need to recap how the book of Mark is structured. Now, the Mark, book of Mark is split up into two main parts, Mark chapters 1 to 8. It's asking the question of the, us, the readers, who is Jesus? And we're given that answer in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 30. Jesus is revealed as the Messiah, the Christ, which means the anointed one, the king. And now that has been revealed, the rest of Mark, Mark chapters 8, 31 to Mark chapter 16, it's asking two other questions. It's asking the question, then, why has Jesus come? Why has Jesus come? And what has he come to do? And what does it mean to follow Jesus? And there are four groups of uh, people that Mark is looking at throughout the book of Mark. That is, Mark is looking at the disciples, Mark is looking at the crowd, he's looking at individuals, and he's looking at those who oppose Jesus and how they respond to who Jesus is and these questions of why he's come. 
And the question as us, as the readers, is meant to ask ourselves is, who are we in the story? Are we like the disciples? Are we like the crowd? Are we like these certain individuals? Or are we like those who oppose Jesus? So first, let's go, go come to the rejection of Jesus by his enemies. In Mark's Gospel, the main enemies, apart from Satan, is the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And as Tim explained two weeks ago, this group of people form the religious, in Mark chapter 11, they form the religious leaders, the ruling party. And in verse 1, we see that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're scheming to arrest Jesus and secretly kill him. But they can't kill him because it's the, festival of, it's the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. Thousands and thousands of people have, have, have streamed into Jerusalem and they're afraid that if they kill Jesus now, because Jesus is popular, that there'll be a riot on their hands. So the question is, was the rejection of Jesus as a result of the power of Jesus' enemies? They're scheming. And the, answer, the clear answer is no. In verse 10, we see that the religious leaders can only get to Jesus because of Judas's betrayal, betrayal by one of the disciples. Also in verse 43, when Judas comes with the, the crowd with swords and clubs sent by the religious leaders, one of, one of the Jesus' followers gets out a sword and wants to fight back, and it looks like there's going to be a riot on their hands, just what the religious leaders feared. But what does Jesus do in verse 48? Jesus puts a stop to the riot. He makes it clear it's not because of the power of their swords or, the, or their clubs that they're going to arrest Jesus. No, he's going to allow them to arrest him because the scriptures must be fulfilled. And when they finally put Jesus to trial in verse 55, they try to find evidence against Jesus, but they couldn't. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And without any evidence, without any credible testimony, legally they had to let Jesus go. But the high priest, he, he can't let that happen. So he takes things into his own hands. Look at verse 60. With the trial becoming a shambles, the high priest says to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remains silent. He doesn't say anything. And as long as Jesus remains silent... He'll be acquitted. There's nothing that he can do. The high priest just gets desperate and he asks Jesus in verse 61 one more time, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says in verse 32, he finally responds, I am and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming in the clouds. With these words, Jesus is not only claiming to be the Messiah, the king that they've been waiting for, to claim that he's going to sit at the right hand of God, he's claiming that he will be the ultimate judge. That is the position of judgment. And he's going to come from heaven and he's going to be the judge. Do you see the irony of the situation here? They're judge, putting Jesus on trial. They're going to judge Jesus, but they're judging the one who's ultimately going to judge this whole universe. So the question is, is Jesus... Killed because he was overpowered by his enemies. No, it's clear. They had no case against him. It's only because Jesus allows them to kill him that he'll be killed. It's clear without Jesus' help that there's nothing they, they can do. And this is a mockery of a trial in every sense of the word. And we see that. 
when Jesus gives them what they need, what do they do, these supposed judges, supposed court? They spit on him. They blindfold him. They punch him. They mock him and say, prophesy, Jesus, who hit you? What kind of trial is that? Jesus, you can see so clearly, Jesus' enemies reject him out of fear because they hate the fact that he's told them that their traditions and their lives, you know, they're fake. They're not looking after God's people as they should be, as the leaders of God's people. So he's critical of them and they can't stand it and they hate him. So what do we learn about people? We learn that people reject Jesus out of fear or because they don't like what he has to say about the way that they live. And what do we learn about Jesus? We learn that Jesus will not use force, he will not use violence, he will not use his power to make people follow him. That even if even he allows people to judge him unfairly, but we know that one day he's going to come as the ultimate judge. But the question now is, what about you? Have you brought judgment on Jesus? Have you put Jesus to trial in your life? Maybe you're one of those people, maybe you think, oh, Jesus, I don't believe what you say or who you say you are. And even if you do exist, I reject your claim on my life. I will live my life the way I want to live it. But maybe some of you will uh, actually believe that Jesus exists. Maybe you even believe his claims on, on your life. But maybe... You've been mistreated by Christians or you've been mistreated by the church. Or maybe something's happened in your life where you've suffered or someone you've loved suffered and you blame Jesus. You say, Jesus, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have allowed me to suffer or the person I loved to have suffered. Now, I, I believe that if we truly understand what, who, what Jesus has done and his rejection in Mark chapters 14 and 15, and what he did on the cross, it's impossible to doubt Jesus' love. We may not understand why we're suffering, but you cannot doubt that Jesus loves you. Now, if you don't believe that, if you can't believe that, that Jesus really loves you, just bear with me for a bit more longer as we see Jesus rejected by his friends and Jesus rejected by God and what he does in response. So let's look at the second group of people. Let's look at the Jesus rejected by his friends, by the disciples. And we see that in Mark chapter 14, it wasn't just Judas who rejected Jesus. It was all the disciples that abandoned Jesus. Those who Jesus called his friends, they rejected him when the time of testing came. They all abandoned him. But let's first look at Judas. Why did Judas reject Jesus? Now, Mark is a, a pains to point out three times in Mark chapter 14, he describes Judas as one of the 12. He had a privileged position. He was with Jesus for three years. He had an insight into Jesus that most other people didn't. He saw the miracles. How could someone like Judas, one of the 12, betray Jesus? And the story here in verse 3 tells us why. We, we see a woman who comes to Jesus in verse 3 and pours perfume over him. Now, in Mark's gospel, we don't know who that woman was. But in John's gospel, in John chapter 12, we know that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And not only did she pour perfume over Jesus' head, 
she actually uh, got her hair and she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. It was an intimate act. And those who witnessed this act, they were shocked. They were flabbergasted by it because it was so extravagant, so unnecessary, so wasteful. It was customary in that day that if you came to someone's house, that, yeah, you would pour perfume on their feet because they were traveling, they wore sandals, their feet got smelly and stinky, and so you poured perfume over their feet. But you used cheap perfume, right? Because after you know, a few hours when they left, they, they walked, they get smelly again. But she used perfume of extraordinary value. This, uh, this jar that she had, it was worth more than a year's wages. It was probably a family heirloom. And what did she do? She didn't just take a little bit of it. She broke the jar and poured it all over Jesus. Why? It's like someone here at MCC. Imagine this. Someone here sold their house. Sold their house, got all the money. They hired the opera house. They flew in Tim Keller from New York. They hired the Sydney uh, Symphony Orchestra. They got Neil Perry to cook. Bought the most expensive ingredients, all the food, this lavish you know, 10-course dinner for all of you guys to feast on and wine and dine like celebrities for one night. And at the, end of the, at the end of the night, this Les Paul guitar, 1957, Alan Duane, Les Paul guitar comes out and it's roll wrapped up and it's presented to Hans okay, for his service to MCC. And you don't want to know, you don't want to Google how much that guitar is worth. I can assure you. Right? Imagine if someone did that in MCC. What would you think of that person, right? <laughs> you wouldn't think much of them, would you? But this is Mary. She does something like that. And not only that, gets her hair, wipes Jesus' feet. It's so inappropriate. It's intimate. You don't do that in public. And so what do the disciples do? What do the disciples do when they see this unashamed act of love and devotion? They're flabbergasted. Look at verse 4. Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. And again, we know from John chapter 12, it was Judas who said this. But how does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say to Judas and anyone who rebuked Mary? Verse 6, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime that you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume over my body to prepare my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Where they see wasteful, unnecessary, useless, inappropriate, impulsive acts by a silly and stupid woman, Jesus sees beauty, stunning beauty. The thing is that Jesus has warned them three times in Mark already that he is about to go to Jerusalem and die. In Mark chapter 8, the first time he predicts his death, what does Peter do? Peter actually takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. Remember Jesus' shocking response? Get behind me, Satan. What about in Mark chapter 9? Again, Jesus predicts his death. What do the disciples do? What are they arguing about on the road? Who's the greatest? 
Mark chapter 10, again, Jesus predicts that he will die. What happens right after? James and John. Jesus, promise me that I will sit on your left and your right in the greatest positions of honor. The disciples don't get it, do they? After being told over and over again, who's the stupid one? Who's the blind one? Is it Mary? Or is it the disciples that so easily judge Mary and rebuke her? When it's actually Mary who's the only one who actually hears Jesus and who's actually listening to Jesus, who actually can understand that he's about to die. I don't know if you can recall, there was another time that Mary was, uh, was rebuked and ashamed in front of Jesus. Do you remember that time? In Luke's Gospel, what's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus' teaching. And what's her sister feeling? Martha is angry. She's busy doing all the preparation of the food because Jesus and all the disciples are there at that home. And she's mad at, at Mary and she's mad at Jesus. And why don't she come to Jesus and say, Jesus, don't you care that, Martha, that Mary has left me to do all the work by myself? Command her, tell her to help me. And what's Jesus' respond? Martha, Martha, you are worried and you're busy with many things. You know, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the world, that one thing, and it won't be taken away from her. Again, Mary is the only one who sees, who appreciates Jesus. Jesus is more important than our service of him. If we don't see the beauty in Jesus, even though we're serving him, then you've missed the point. You see, the disciples, they can see the money, they can see the poor, but they cannot and they don't see Jesus. Only Mary is the one who is not blind. Only Mary is the one who can see And that's the last straw for Judas. That sends Judas over the edge. And he makes a decision to betray Jesus. And perhaps for Judas, he's seen enough of Jesus. He can see that Jesus is not the Messiah that he hoped for or expected. Jesus is never going to give him what he wants. He wants to be served. He doesn't want to serve. He wants money. He doesn't want to give money away. He wants power. He doesn't want weakness. He can see the writing on the wall. He spent three years with Jesus being his disciples. But it's time to cut his losses and to give Jesus over, for, to use Jesus for his gain. And so in verse 10, he changes sides. He goes over to the chief priest and, and he gives Jesus over. He will no longer follow Jesus, but he will use Jesus now. And now as we, as we read this story of the response of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and of Judas and of the disciples of Mary and of Judas, the question for us as the readers is, who are you in this story? Are you, are you like the chief priests and the teachers of the law who reject Jesus because of what he said about your life? You, know, you can't stand what he's, that he's, um, what he's told you how to live. Or are you like the disciples? You've been coming to church, you've been with Jesus, but you're blind to who Jesus 
really is. And maybe you've been coming to church for years, for decades. Maybe you've been serving in Bible study. Maybe you've been part, even part of the leadership team. But when you come across someone like Mary, you're quick to judge or to be critical. If not openly, then maybe in your hearts. Or are you like Mary? You found beauty in Jesus. Not for what he can do for you, but what he's already done. You'll do anything for Jesus without thinking about the cost, whether in terms of your money or in terms of your reputation or in terms of your life. Or are you like Judas? Are you happy to identify as a Christian as long as you don't have to face any criticism, as long as it doesn't cost you too much, as long as it doesn't upset your plans for your life? You will follow Jesus as long as it's more useful for you to follow Jesus than not. And as Tim Keller says in a sermon on this passage, you know, are you a Mary? Do you see Jesus as beautiful or are you a Judas? Do you see Jesus as useful? And there's a Mary and there's a Judas in all of us. And to be honest, I really struggle to be a Mary in, in my life. I see some Christians and I see what they do and how they're acting and I go, oh, I wish they didn't act like that. I wish they didn't do that. I... I find myself judging. You know, I serve and I work hard because, not because I see Jesus as beautiful, it's because I want, to, I want people to notice me, right? I want people to know, oh yeah, I was a missionary in Thailand for 14 years. And, and when people say, oh, it must have been hard for you, I kind of nod, yeah, yeah, it was, it was hard. And I leave you thinking, oh, it was hard for gospel reasons, when a lot of the times it was, it was hard because of my sin, because I was blind, because I acted stupidly, because I made poor choices. <laughs> and over the last couple of months, uh, I've really struggled to be a Mary because of the choices I made. I thought, I decided that I could work two days a week and I could study full-time at uni and also I could serve at church. And the lecturer warned me multiple times, if you want to work and if you want to study full-time, it will be very, very difficult, and you can only do it if you don't have a family and if you don't have any, anything else, commitments in your life. That's the only way you, you can do it. Okay? But I thought, I'm not like most people. I'm exceptional. I can do this. <laughs> no, no, I was stupid. And I kept on giving up on the chances to drop a subject or two before the census date, and now the census date's passed. You can't, you can't see beauty in Jesus when your life is so busy, when you've got other things that are, that are important. And I've struggled. How do we become, how do you become more like Mary and not like Judas? Well, we'll come to that, but we have a little bit more to see. It was not only Judas who rejected uh, Jesus, but all of his disciples. And Jesus predicts that this is what they'll do. Have a look at verse 27. You know, they're sharing the Passover meal together, and Jesus tells them, you will all fall away. But in verse 29, Peter says, even if all fall away, I will not. All the rest of the disciples, <laughs> they might be weak, but not me. I will follow you. And Jesus said, no, no. Today, no. Today, you will disown me three times. And Peter says confidently, no. Even if I have to die for you, I will not disown you. And all the other disciples said the, the, the same thing. 
When I was in year 12, I went to a church camp. I was part of a church, and the, the, the youth leader, he had us, uh, a bunch of us in year 12, boys, uh, men, in his group. And it, it, and it was one of the last nights, and he was sharing with us, and he said, look, some of you might fall away, and I want to warn you. And he, and he asked each and every one of us, what do you think will take you away from your faith? And, you know, some of them might have said girls or work or, or the careers or, you know, something, uh, suffering. But I was racking my brain and I couldn't think of any reason that would, t- I love Jesus, anything that could take me away from Jesus. And I said, I, c- I can't think of anything. But now, <laughs> now, uh, you know, 20, 30 years later, I can, I can think of a number of different things that could take my faith away. I am not as naive as I was when I was 17. I've seen a number of Christians who I look up to and admire. A lot of Christians that are stronger and, and better than me fall away. I'm not immune um, to things that, to, to temptation. I'm wary of myself. So we see when, when the, the men come to arrest Jesus and when the, when the disciples and the followers see that Jesus will not fight back, well, what do they do? They all fled. They all abandoned Jesus. Not a single disciple stayed with Jesus in his time of greatest need. And we see Peter in the story following Jesus at a distance. Maybe, you know, he's, he's thinking about the words that he says. Maybe he's feeling guilty. But when he came to the test, when, when he was uh, accused of being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, he denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. And not only that, some scholars think that he might, Peter might have cursed Jesus to prove to those who were accusing him that he didn't know Jesus. Why did Jesus have to come and die? Mark wants us to see that Jesus had to come and die because none of the disciples could, could remember, were faithful. They all abandoned Jesus. So what does this passage teach us about people? Well, it teaches us that we can be critical and judgmental of people who Jesus would honour and praise. And a lot of time we can be critical, can't we? But it can destroy the church. Our criticism can destroy the church. Secondly, even those who think they are closest to Jesus can reject and abandon him when tested. So don't mistake your regular attendance at church or going to Bible study or growth groups as an indicator of your closeness with Jesus. And what does it teach us about Jesus? That Jesus sees beauty in the things that we don't see. And he honours people that we don't honour. We've seen Jesus rejected by his enemies. We've seen Jesus rejected by his friends. Lastly, we come to Jesus' rejection by God. When we looked at Jesus' rejection by his enemies, we saw that Jesus was unfazed by his arrest, his trial, the accusations. He was unfazed. It didn't move him. And again, when Jesus is rejected by his disciples, his friends, it didn't surprise him. He predicted it. He's not shocked by it. But when it comes to Jesus' rejection by God, we see a completely different response. All the way throughout the book of Mark, Jesus has been in complete control. There's been a storm. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping in the boat while his disciples are completely afraid. You know, there's thousands of people starving, hungry. What does Jesus do? He does a miracle. 
bread, makes bread and fish. He's attacked by the religious leaders. He's in control. But when he goes to the Gethsemane, what happens? What happens to Jesus? Have a look in verse 33. When Jesus goes up to pray, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul, verse 34, is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now that word troubled there, it's not some some problem that we we have, that he had, like, oh, I've got some problem at work or, you know, I've I've had a problem with one of of my children. The word troubled there, it's a word signifying horror at something that's just about to happen. It's terrifying horror. And why did Jesus feel such anguish? What caused him to lose control? And it couldn't have been just the prospect of physical death and pain. Because throughout history, we've seen people, martyrs, Christian martyrs, and when they were about to die, when they were about to be killed, they were brave, they were calm, some even sang, some were joyful in the face of the death that they were about to face. Was Jesus any weaker than any of these martyrs? No. We know who Jesus is. So if, Jesus, if it wasn't the prospect of physical death, or pain, physical pain, that many other Christian martyrs have suffered. What was it that Jesus was facing? We see a hint in verse 36. Jesus prays, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And in the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for God's wrathful judgment on all, all human evil. God gives Jesus a glimpse of what's going to happen at the cross. And Jesus is shattered. He loses control. He's in anguish. Imagine what it would have been like. Not only he sees his glimpse, but on the cross, he actually has that reality. How much worse could that have been? That he faces the rejection of God. Every other time he prayed, heaven opened up. And there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. But this time Jesus prays. And instead of seeing heaven, he sees hell. He sees rejection from the one that he's had a close relationship from eternity. And it causes him anguish, it causes him pain. It's the first time that Jesus will face rejection from God. And it shook him to the core. And it shook him so much that he asked, pleads with God, God, is there any other way? And there isn't. And so he says, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus takes on the sins, he takes on the rejection of God in our place for us because there's no other way. He submits his will, he submits his desires, he submits his life to, so that we don't have to face that rejection. So how do we become more like a Mary and less like Judas? How do we find Jesus as beautiful and not just useful? How do we keep on going when we're crushed by rejection? When we're crushed by the trouble and suffering in our lives? Only by truly grasping what Jesus has done for us and why. And to go back and remind ourselves again and again and again because I easily forget. I keep on forgetting and we keep on forgetting. And that's why Jesus commanded his followers to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Again and again and again. That's what we're going to do soon. Through remembering the bread, through, re- through remembering the cup, 
remember Jesus broken for us, that the, the, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus and not on us. But we also remember Jesus' word to the disciples at the start of the Lord's Last Supper and at the end. What were Jesus' words? One of you will betray me and all of you will abandon me. It reminds us that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come in humility and we come in thankfulness. We do not bring anything to the Lord's table. Why was it that Mary's act was so beautiful? We can, we can ease, just so as easily see it as wasteful, inappropriate, extravagant. Because in Mary's act, we see a reflection of God's extravagant, wasteful, inappropriate, lavish love on us by sending his perfect son to live the faithful and obedient life we couldn't live and to die for people like us who abandon and reject him. It is through our deeper understanding of this love that we can be transformed and increasingly see Jesus as beautiful and not only just useful. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend, the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son. You, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me, by your perfect sacrifice I have been brought near. Your enemy you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy now seated at your, ta- at your table. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Let's pray. Merciful Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for such undeserving people like us. Help us to see Jesus as beautiful and not just useful. Forgive us when we judge other people and you in ways that show that we really don't know you. Help us to be transformed by a deeper understanding of your death and resurrection today and for the rest of our earthly lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.